0: I watched a lot of movies with my dad when I was young, and it's fair to say that until I discovered the joys of old black-and-white universal horror movies, a lot of my tastes, a lot of what I considered a good movie, came from him. From a young age, if he would notice in the TV Guide that a great old film that he loved was playing that night on The Late Show, he would offer to wake me up to watch it with him. I didn't always manage to make it through these late shows, but one film that we kept coming back to was the classic war movie, The Dirty Dozen. It had a lot of actors I had seen in other things, and the whole vibe of that film just resonated with me in all the right ways. I lost count of how many times we watched it together. And somewhere along the way, when I was a bit older and in my teens, and those late night movie fests weren't something we did anymore, the most amazing thing happened The Dirty Dozen got a sequel. And Lee Marvin was in it, and Richard Jackal, and although there was no Charles Bronson, who is the other survivor, It was a made-for-TV movie, and we made damn sure we were parked in front of the TV to watch this unexpected new installment in what was now not a great standalone film, but a franchise. Well, it it wasn't very good, certainly not close to the original, and trying to work out how Major Reisman aged almost 20 years in the few months of movie time that had passed was a bit of a stretch. But regardless of that, it gave my dad and I one more unexpected chance to sit down and watch a movie together. And regardless of the quality of an individual film, there's always great value in the shared experience of watching a movie. My dad requested that Sam and I take a look at one of his all-time favorite westerns, The Professionals. And that's just what we're going to do, even if it has Burt Lancaster in it. Because on this podcast, we love old movies.
1: Hello, film historians. I'm Sam, and I love old movies. We've got Derek the Dad Kick here.
0: Hello, and welcome to episode 32, which is our second stop along the way of all Western Movie March.
1: And we're on March break.
0: And that's been amazing. It always is. No school? Yep. What's not to like? No school and no work means more movies. I thought you were going to say makes Homer something something. Go crazy? Don't mind if I do. (laughs) So today we're going to be looking at a film from 1966, The Professionals, which although technically a Western, it's definitely set in a timeline that puts it after what we would call the Wild West.
1: Yeah, I guess it's set in during the Mexican Revolution, similar to The Wild Bunch, so that puts it almost World War One era?
0: Yeah, that's right. It's a Western set in a time when the West isn't so wild, and a way of life has been eroded and replaced by more civilization, and that leads a certain kind of man to look for opportunities south of the border. There are definitely a few films that explore this theme, The Wild Bunch, as you mentioned, probably being the best of them. But this one is no slouch. No, not at all.
1: A Burt Lancaster Paradox film?
0: Oh, absolutely. Burt is in this, so yeah. But the film is great. So it is a perfect example of the paradox.
1: And really, it's one heck of a cast.
0: This is an all-star film. There's no doubt about that. Lots of talent on both sides of the camera, and the result is a really fun, exciting film.
1: And it has Lee Marvin.
0: It does, which automatically makes it a few notches higher on the awesome scale.
1: So let's do the business so we can get on with this one.
0: First order of business. A big thank you to all our listeners. It's great that you keep coming back and keep checking out the new episodes. One of the things we found, and I don't know if this makes our podcast typical or atypical, but we've noticed that sometimes our episodes don't have great opening weeks.
1: Loving You had a bad opening week, for instance.
0: Yeah, sure. So did the watch-along. But we're noticing that our episodes don't really die out in terms of new listens until week three or even four after release. Obviously, some episodes still do better than others. But it's cool that we see the traffic continue to explore our episodes long after the release date.
1: Some of our old ones always get hits, like Sunset Boulevard and To Helen Back.
0: Yep. Just slow progress. But progress nonetheless. So thanks for listening. You're awesome. Keep coming back.
1: And check us out on the socials.
0: Yep. Tell them how. Facebook. I love old movies, the podcast. Insta. At I love old movies, the podcast.
1: El Twitter.
0: At Ilom Podcast. Email I love old movies the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. Also, be sure to check us out on Pet Rock Radio, where older episodes of our show, along with the best local and international alternative music, are yours for the listening.
1: Check us out Mondays, Saturdays, and Sundays, but check out the music anytime.
0: We'll link it in the description.
1: Okay, so the professionals. Yes. You've seen this a few times. I have not. Yes. Gumpy loves this one.
0: He does, and that's why he requested it.
1: All right, all right. So sum it up for me in seven words.
0: The Magnificent Seven meets The Wild Bunch.
1: Oh my god. Yes! Hit the music!
0: Both the writer and director for this film is Richard Brooks. After working as a writer for the NBC network, Brooks worked as a director at New York's Mill Pond Theatre. He then moved to Los Angeles, where he got into the film industry, for the most part working as a writer for B-movies. After serving as a Marine for two years during World War II, Brooks made his directorial debut in 1950 with MGM's Crisis. Before that, he did a lot of work as a writer, with more than 13 screenplays credited to him in the 1940s alone, including Key Largo in 1948. He kept this writing pace through the 1950s, along with directing 13 films in the decade, including The Brothers Karamazov in 1958, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, also in 58.
1: Both aspects of his career slowed down in the 60s, and all the way through the, to the 80s, working on his last film... Fever Pitch in 1985. Brooks won his only Academy Award in 1960 for Elmer Gantry for Best Screenplay, and had six Oscar nominations and 25 nominations for various other awards throughout his career. He was also recognized as Independent long before 1965 when he officially moved away from the studio system of Hollywood. Brooks ended his career with 26 directing credits and 36 writing credits, and has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He died in 1992 at the age of 79.
0: Lee Marvin was a member of the United States Marine Corps during World War II, achieving the rank of corporal before being demoted for being a troublemaker, and then having his military career ended by wounds sustained in a hail of machine gun and sniper fire. But it was a post-war job as a plumber's assistant at a community theater building that led to him learning to act, appearing in a few plays and TV shows, and then on Broadway in a production of Billy Budd in 1951. After moving to Hollywood, he quickly made a number of films, frequently turning up in military movies due to his reputation as a decorated combat veteran and the legitimacy that he brought with him. His first feature film was called You're in the Navy Now alongside another young actor also making his film debut, none other than Charles Bronson. After getting established, he appeared in a lot of great films in the 1950s, working with some of the biggest names. The Wild One with Marlon Brando, Not as a Stranger with Robert Mitchum, Bad Day at Black Rock with Spencer Tracy, and The Kane Mutiny with Humphrey Bogart. After establishing his leading man credentials on a television show called M Squad, Marvin made three films with John Wayne, The Comancheros, The Comancheros, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and Donovan's Reef. The mid-60s saw Marvin climb to the top of the ladder with his Oscar-winning role in Cat Baloo, and then The Professionals, and The Dirty Dozen, and Point Blank. All classics, showing the former Marine at the height of his power. He became increasingly ambivalent about Hollywood and filmmaking, though, and his career produced little of note in the 1970s, although turning down the role of Quint in Jaws is perhaps one he wished he might have had a do-over on. In the 1980s, his career almost over, he made the war epic The Big Red One, and then one of my favourite Canadian films, The seminal Death Hunt, reuniting him with Charles Bronson in a tale about the hunt for the mad trapper. His final films were the aforementioned Dirty Dozen sequel, and the Chuck Norris action film Delta Force in 1986. Lee Marvin died in 1987 at the age of 63, and was buried with full military honours.
1: Playing the role of Maria is Tunisian-born Italian actress Claudia Cardinale. Despite her natural beauty, which caught the eye of many film producers in the 1950s, Cardinale, it might be said, earned her career the old-fashioned way. She married well. While pregnant at age 17, Cardinale was signed by Franco Cristaldi, her future husband and not the dad to a seven-year deal that saw her work with top Italian directors and actors, but also conceal her pregnancy and motherhood, keeping it a huge secret and allowing Cristaldi to control almost every aspect of her life and public image, going so far as to raise her own son as a brother. She has made a number of films in Italy, England, and France, before appearing in two films in 1963 that really launched her to the next level. The Leopard, co-starring Burt Lancaster, and Fellini's masterpiece Eight and a Half. The interest she got from Hollywood after this was ample, but she refused to sign any more exclusive contracts, only managing things on a film-by-film basis. She moved back and forth between Europe and America, making films like The Pink Panther, working with actors like Anthony Quinn and Rock Hudson, becoming pals with Elliot Gould and Steve McQueen, turning up on the cover of a Bob Dylan album, and, of course, starring in The Professionals, which is considered her best Hollywood film. Cardinale worked in films and television through to the 2000s, when she debuted on stage in Paris, and she did a great deal of stage work after, touring in Italy and appearing in a few Tennessee Williams plays. She has been a great supporter of women's and gay rights, and has been a UNESCO ambassador for over 20 years. Claudia Cardinale is still alive and well at the age of 83.
0: Based on the novel A Mule for the Marquesa by Frank O'Rourke, the professionals combined one heck of a cast with an Oscar-winning and multiple-nominated writer-director, and the result is a fantastic film that stands as a good action movie, or as a deconstructionist western. The film breaks down into two neatly structured halves, the journey to Raza's base to free Maria, and the journey back with Raza and his men in hot pursuit. And most of the film is set in the blazing hellscape of the Mexican desert, creating a film where the central conflict is hard to define. Man versus man? Sure. Man versus nature? Of course. And finally, man versus himself, as critical decisions need to be made and personal ethics weighed. The production of the film was a curious one, with a great deal of very difficult on-location shooting offset by wild partying in Las Vegas at night, particularly by Lee Marvin and Woody Strode, who had become close friends after filming the man who shot Liberty Valance together years earlier. Marvin and Lancaster did not get along on set, and in fact their tension was great enough that the director needed to intervene. Marvin, for his part, did not enjoy Lancaster's ego. And his sense of self-importance. And Lancaster had no time for Marvin's problematic alcoholism. All four of the leads, and even Claudia Cardinale, did most of their own stunts, which, given that most of the men were in their 50s, was quite something. Only Woody Strode did all of his own stunt work, since there were no black stuntmen in Hollywood at that time that could match his height and bulk.
1: Yeah, he was a big dude. You'd need, like, The Rock to do his stunts. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: The film was a big enough success that talk of a sequel was always prominent, but no one wanted a repeat of what had happened with The Magnificent Seven sequels, and insisted that any follow-up film needed all four of the leads. The problem was, scheduling never allowed the four of them to work together again, and after Robert Ryan's death in 1973, the idea of a sequel died with him. Herb Lightman wrote an article about the professionals for the American Cinematographer Magazine website, and I just want to share some of his thoughts. The Professionals is a film made by professionals, and that fact is evident on every frame. Written for the screen and directed by Richard Brooks, the Columbia Pictures release fills the wide screen with an explosion of dramatic excitement, photographed in Panavision and Technicolor by Conrad Hall. Though its locale is the rugged American West, The Professionals is a cut far above the genre of motion pictures usually lumped into the general category of Westerns. It is, rather, a bare-knuckled action-adventure film with definite emphasis on action, which gets up and moves and keeps going until, until two hours have miraculously flown by. In perhaps no other type of motion picture is the art of cinematography quite so pivotal as in the outdoor film. The cinematographer, usually working on location, far from the conveniences of the soundstage, is called upon to make nature perform visually as an integral part of the action. He must control the basically uncontrollable elements of weather and terrain and go right on shooting even when conditions approach the impossible, because budget and schedule wait for no man. In The Professionals, Director of Photography Hall has done all of this while creating a gutsy, virile style of camera artistry, which is perfectly in key with the hard-hitting story.
1: It's a great article. We'll link it in the description. Go and give it a read.
0: Absolutely. What is the tale of the tape on this one, Sam?
1: Okay, so we have a 7.3 on IMDb. Mm -hmm. The audience score is 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it is. And the tomato meter is 89%. The film was nominated for three Oscars for Best Directing, Writing, and Cinematography. The film can be bought or rented on YouTube.
0: A wealthy American businessman, J.W. Grant, played by Ralph Bellamy, hires four men with very specific skill sets to rescue his wife, Maria, who has been kidnapped by a Mexican revolutionary, played by Jack Palance, and is being held for a $100,000 ransom. Lee Marvin's Rico Fardin is a weapons and tactics specialist. Burt Lancaster's Bill Dalworth is an explosives expert. Robert Ryan's Hans Ehrengard is a horse trainer and wrangler, and Woody Strode's Jake Sharp is a scout, tracker, and manhunter. Barden and Dalworth have both worked with Raza in the past and have trouble imagining this respected warrior as a kidnapper, but they are tempted by the promise of $10,000 each upon completion of the mission.
1: Cowboys with wicked skills going into Mexico to fight bandits. Okay, this is pretty magnificent Seven but there's only four that's pretty wild bunch i see what you did there now
0: they endure hard traveling through the desert and survive two violent encounters with raz's men and when they finally locate raz's compound they find a well-armed and organized crew and great planning and tactics are required in order to rescue maria
1: but once they find maria they realize that she's not raz's prisoner but his lover and despite knowing that grant has lied to them they choose to honor this contract.
0: Essentially, they wind up being the ones to kidnap Maria, who had run away from Grant, fled to Mexico, and hooked up with Raza. Hardin and the gang make peace with the ethics of what they are doing by consoling themselves with thoughts of the $10,000.
1: They have arranged a getaway train, but Raza had men waiting for them at it, and in the ensuing gunfight, Guard is wounded. Later, Maria tends to his wounds, hoping that a wounded man will slow down their escape so Raza can catch them. As they make their way through the unforgiving desert with Raza in hot pursuit, Maria explains that she always loved Raza and was essentially sold to Grant as part of an arranged marriage scheme.
0: With the distance closing between Hunters and Hunted, Dolworth volunteers to stay behind to allow the other professionals to escape to the border with Maria. This one-man-versus-six standoff in a mountain pass sees Dolworth wounded, Raza wounded, and Raza's five soldiers killed. Harden and his men meet with Grant, who offers to pay them immediately as well as treat them to any further expenses. When Dalworth shows up with Raza, Grant is quite amused and grateful and orders Raza killed. But this leads Harden and the professionals to step in, intervening in this weird situation and allowing Maria and Raza to escape back to Mexico, satisfied to not have to take grant's money if it means being lied to by him and allowing him to basically buy women that he desires the four men follow raza and maria back into mexico
1: i gotta say that ending that came a bit out of left field for me
0: yeah it didn't ruin the movie because the characters were all set up as these inherently good and virtuous dudes but on the other hand They were mercenaries who followed the cash in spite of their morality. I'm not really so certain that they would have ridden off with self-satisfied smiles on their faces after forsaking all that cash.
1: Maybe they wouldn't have been able to live with themselves.
0: Well, then they were in the wrong line of work all along, weren't they?
1: I suppose they were. Okay, pros and cons. Let's do this.
0: My pros. Number one, the cast and the characters. I'm just going to read these names again for effect. Lee Marvin, Burt Lancaster, Robert Ryan, Woody Strode, Ralph Bellamy, Jack Palance, Claudia Cardinale, all together in one film. And every performer is quite good. And their characters are even better, with everyone getting moments to shine. Lee Marvin's Rico is one of the coolest cats, a cowboy mercenary whose special skill that makes him better than everyone else is strategy and planning. Jake is a tracker. And then we have a demolitionist and a horse master. As far as skill sets go, this is not the Magnificent Seven, where being great with a gun or a knife was enough to get you on the team. This is a mature and capable bunch, experts at what they do, and together they are effectively unstoppable. After seeing Lee Marvin and Robert Ryan trying so hard to one-up each other in the Dirty Dozen, seeing them team up in this film? That was a real treat. Number two, the themes. This isn't just a story of mercenaries and a kidnapped wife and a treacherous husband cuckolded by the Mexican revolutionary. It's a tale of the decaying West, a way of life that is ending. And this is a theme explored in many Westerns that take place post-1900. The freedom of the frontier had ended, And as the frontier disappeared, that left the frontiersmen effectively displaced and seeking purpose. And so, as in the Wild Bunch, we see a group of fighters who are following that endless fight. Civilization ends the fight, so they migrate to where civilization is less developed to continue fighting. Because the fight is all they know. The good guys versus the bad guys. The question is, as Dalworth asks, who are the good guys? The professionals are rescuers, but they're reduced to being kidnappers, which sees them flip their own perceptions of alignment. These are strong, capable men, but they also have weaknesses and vulnerability due to their character or their age. But seeing them also struggle with the ethics of what they're doing, trying to figure out their own position on the alignment scale as they insert themselves into a fight that is not theirs, is an amazing thing to watch. Number three, the pacing. There is not one second of wasted time in this film. Without ever feeling rushed, the movie seems full. Every scene is full of plot or characterization or the brutal misery of traveling through the desert or the beautiful scenery. It's just a well-structured film, which lifts it above the more basic and ubiquitous entries in the action-adventure genre. My cons. Number one, this is a very efficient movie, but there are some aspects that would have been made better if they were just a bit longer. Namely... All the action scenes. Make no mistake, what action there is is quite good, but almost every action scene left me wanting more. I wanted more hip-firing machine guns, more exploding dynamite arrows, more pump-action shotguns blowing away banditos. There are a lot of shots and scenes of the hard-traveling, and it would have been easy to dial back a bit of that to let the action scenes breathe a bit more. But in general, this film is so well-paced, as I mentioned, that this is a very small criticism. Number two, towards the end of the film, we get the Burt Lancaster show. We get the Burt Lancaster monologue, the Burt Lancaster makeout scene, the Burt Lancaster heroic fight against unbeatable odds. It's just also on brand for him. My essential complaint with him in films boils down to this he subtracts from scenes rather than adding to them by not making his acting about the actors he is playing with. And the perfect counterpoint to this is his conversation with Raza in the standoff scene. These two characters have a great conversation, but we never see them in the same shot. They effectively acted by themselves and were cut together later. And that sort of scene serves Burt Lancaster and his skill set very well. But in my mind, it also exposed him even more. Put those two performers face-to-face in frame, and Burt would have started competing, started overdoing it, and the scene would have been ruined. Logically, in the context of the film, if anyone should have stayed be- behind, it was Harden, or possibly Jake. The one time in the film we even saw dolworth Dalworth take on a group of men by himself, he wound up stripped, tied, and hanging upside down. Having him turn into Rambo at the end was a bit unbelievable. And then, given that Dalworth alone took out all of Raz's men fairly quickly, why didn't all the professionals just stay behind for the fight? It would have been over in seconds. It's just a logical... And needless star serving at a time in the film when logic mattered most. Number three, for the uninitiated, the explanation of the politics and strife within Mexico that led to the revolution is not particularly well done. If you don't really understand what that conflict was about going in, you won't understand it anymore coming out. And since it's a major part of the plot and motivation for so many of the characters, I feel it could have been laid out a bit better. Although, I have to concede, The way they do it fits in with the central question of the movie. Who are the good guys? All that having been said, this is a great big enthusiastic watch for me. Totally, I love this film. I wish there were more just like it. You're up.
1: Okay, so my pros. One, the settings. Honestly, I mostly mean the rocky cliffs and pathways in the film. I just loved how they looked on camera and I definitely get why the film was nominated for an Oscar for Best Cinematography. I really like looking at angular things on camera, so I loved all the scenes in those cliff-like areas through Mexico. They were all pointy and cool, yet somehow super easy to climb, since multiple people just climbed up the sides of them. (laughs) Two. The pacing. There is no wasted time in this film. Like... It isn't filled with pointless shots or long and drawn-out scenes. Every second is spent adding onto the plot, the world, or the character's backstories. But at the same time, the movie never felt rushed. Every scene was a perfect length where it would draw me in, but it wouldn't become long and boring. The film was an overall good length as well. It kept everything nice and concise. 3 the strategies. They were so cool. The thing with the crosses being used to symbolize safety or danger was super smart. And I really liked how the strategies weren't one and done things either. Like, they were used throughout the entire film, instead of just being used once and then forgotten about. My favorite one had to be the one when Farden warned the others that if someone held their hat and sort of swiped their arm downwards, it meant they were going to attack. That was really cool. Now my cons. 1. The end. It kinda came out of nowhere. All through the movie, Farden and the others are all like, We're gonna do anything to complete this mission. And by the end, they're all like, let's go tool around in Mexico after abandoning the mission. It just doesn't make sense. Arden and Dalworth are totally willing to kill Raza even though they knew each other beforehand. So it's not believable that they start feeling sympathetic towards Raza just because of Maria. Sure, they love each other, but Maria was not cooperative at all and sometimes kind of mean so why would they just want to drop everything and help her? Fardin's and the other's change of heart comes out of left field, and it's a weird way to end the film. Two, Chiquita. What was the point of her character? It was mentioned multiple times that she was this great fighter or something, and she was the only female fighter in Raz's group, but she didn't do anything to back those claims up. She shot one guy on a train, sort of danced around a bit, lit some bushes on fire, and then died. There was all that hype for her, and then she barely did anything. I would have liked to see her actually do something cool and badass, rather than just stand around. 3. Burt Lancaster More specifically, because I really don't like that guy. I didn't like how the film all of a sudden became the Burt Lancaster story after we got told about Dalworth's past. After that scene where he spilled his backstory and motivations, the film was totally focusing on him instead of Farden. And really, it was so stupid how he single-handedly defeated Raz's gang. If any of the other three would have stayed back, or all of them, they would have wrapped everything up in five minutes. But all in all, it was just such a cool film. Definitely watch it.
0: Alright, and with that, we are at the end.
1: That's a good time to stop. This was fun. What a fun film.
0: It sure was. So thanks to Dad for that request, and if anyone out there listening has a request for a film we could cover, be sure to send it along.
1: Or maybe you'd like to do a cold open for us, and tell a story about your nostalgic memories of watching movies. Get in touch and let's make it happen.
0: Join us next week when we look at another classic Western. This time we're going to go back a bit into the 1940s for the low-key classic The Oxbow Incident.
1: It'll be a good one. But until then, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it.
0: We sure do. So be sure to watch more movies and let everyone you can know about our show. After all, we're not a secret and you do not have to keep us all to yourselves. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies.
1: You never know. They might like hunting down their old friends for money before having a last-minute change of heart as much as you do.
0: Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies the podcast is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from prefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.